Top 50, counting down the best music, TV, books, and movies of 2016. This relevant podcast miniseries is brought to you by Videoblocks. Videoblocks is an affordable, subscription-based stock media site that gives you unlimited access to premium stock footage. Videoblocks also has a sister site, Audioblocks, that offers unlimited access to 130,000 premium music tracks, sound effects, and loops. Right now, Videoblocks is offering our listeners a year subscription to both Videoblocks and Audioblocks for only $149. It's an incredible discounted deal to get both stock video and audio files for any project. Get your year subscription today for only $149 at videoblocks.com relevant. That's V-I-D-E-O-B-L-O-C-K-S dot com slash relevant for this discounted offer. Now here's the show. Welcome to Relevant Top 50, our weekly podcast miniseries counting down the best music, movies, TV, and books of 2016. My name is Jesse Carey. I'm an editor here at Relevant. And here with me today is Relevant Head On Show, Cameron Strang. <laughs> I like it. Thanks. Hey, Jesse. <laughs> hey, man. Uh, also, we have a, a, a new guest uh, joining us. If you listened last week, this is week two. New to the lineup uh, uh, this week is editorial director Aaron Hanbury. Hello, everyone. A uh, little little behind-the-scenes tip. He just had a cheesesteak. I did. I just had a cheesesteak. Yep. Uh, yeah, that, I, I kind cast. of feel like that's going to hamper his performance. I feel like a cheesesteak slows you down quite a bit. I think uh, just too. wait till you hear my analysis on some of this stuff. You'll, <laughs> you'll see. Uh, also with us today is managing editor Rebecca Joe Flores. Hey, guys. Hi, I did Rebecca. not have a cheesesteak. What did you have for lunch? Tacos. Oh. She's ready to go. See, she's light and nimble and energetic. <laughs> uh, behind the ones and twos, our illustrious producer, Ch- Chandler Strang. Hello. He's illustrious. My illustrious. So the Relevant Top 50 is a special six-episode miniseries that we launched last week. So you're jumping in week two right now, where we're counting down numbers 42 through 35 in our top 50 cultural releases of 2016. So just to recap, in case you haven't heard, like the idea behind this is every year the editorial team, about this time of year comes together and talks about what were some of the favorite things that were released over the course of the year. Well, those discussions are so much fun and so interesting, and the debates are, are, are so heated. Aaron's takes are so hot that we decided to bring that discussion to you, the listener, and instead of just breaking them up, we'll still do our, our end-of-year list of, yeah. of the different categories sure. on, on the site. Uh, but we want to do a big mini-series of all the best stuff that we're excited about from this past year. Partly because when we were trying to narrow down our top 10 albums of 2016, we were stuck at a solid 31. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we thought we need to create another forum to talk about some of these albums that just won't make the final list and we won't, you know, but we love and they're great albums. But, you know, so something like this allows us to talk about 20, 25 albums even. Hey, uh, Jesse, catch up the listeners real quick. What were numbers 50 through 43 last week? Last week, we talked about uh, Jack Garrett's album. We talked about Chuck Klosterman's book, So What If We're Wrong, the Netflix show Chef's Table, the incredible Malcolm Gladwell podcast, Revisionist so History, the, the new albums from both Jesus Culture and Bon Iver, the documentary that's on Netflix from Ava DuVernay about the criminal justice system, 13th, and John Oliver's HBO series, Last Week Tonight. Those are hot takes. Thank you for catching me up. I'm ready 
for this week's selections. Oh, you are in for a real treat. <laughs> well, uh, Shobaraka's fourth album, The Narrative, just released last month after a three-year hiatus. Along with envelope-pushing musical collaborations, the album features thoughtful lyrics that examines historic racial injustice, faith, and even love. Coming in at number 42, here's The Narrative from Shobaraka. Tell the politicians they serve us. Make them nervous, I know they hurt us. Tell them we came here for the turn up. Love over hate. Love over hate, I'm here for that. Real love or fake. Real love or fake, I'm here for that. Truth and faith. Truth and faith, I'm here for that. Beauty and grace. Beauty and grace, I'm here for that. If you're here for the love, if you're here for the love, for the love. If you're here for the love, if you're here for the love, for the love. Show Brock is out on the road right now with uh, Propaganda, actually. Uh, they're doing an, uh, a, an evening in like six cities, and it's not a concert, and it's not just a talk. It's mm-hmm. kind of spoken word, and it's rap, and it's dialogue, and about what's happening in this country right now with uh, race and injustice and the church, and it's powerful. And what he's doing, like he, kind of like Propaganda is, he's become a, th- a thought leader oh, in yeah. this, and this yeah, album absolutely. really reflects that. I saw them here in Orlando, and they did a great job. They were raising money for our local school um, for after-school programs. And you were there? Yeah. I was yeah, there, they, too. Oh. The cool thing about this album, it's not, nece- it's not really like a concept album, but there is a concept kind of narrative thread that runs through it. Like that song we just played here, 2016, has obviously the date 2016 in it. Uh, the, the, uh, another clip that we can play, Piano Break 33 AD, uh, has a date. So basically, a lot of the songs are references to different significant times in history as they relate to racial injustice and different racial issues mm-hmm. that are going on. It's I appreciate the album because the songs do stand alone. And they're they're really good tracks throughout, but it also I feel like is a great complete album. Which these days in the Spotify on demand era, I feel mm. like is pretty rare. Here's a little of uh, Piano Break 3380. I'm a recovering addict. I have baggage. I am damaged. I am unequally balanced. I'm a servant, but I have a room in the palace. The, the other thing I like about this record is the production value. Yeah. I feel like it uses a lot of like real instruments and a lot of the comp, like the arrangements are stripped down and it just has a different feel than a lot of stuff uh, that came That's out That's the Humble Beast guys. Yeah. No, a lot of blues, yeah. a lot of jazz. He signed on with uh, Humble Beast, which is like a beautiful eulogy guys mm-hmm. and, and propaganda yeah. and they're based out of Portland. So it's got that West Coast vibe, which is really cool. It's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a great album and, and it, we love it when like, you know, good hip hop is made by guys who, you know, have a Christian worldview and, and they're bring doing, purpose to it. Yeah, oh, absolutely. One of my favorite developments of this past year has been the and campaign, which show was instrumental in starting as a co-founder. And it's actually a political uh, think tank or activist group of these guys who got together and said, you know what? Neither thing is called the Illuminati. The Illuminati. Illuminati. Oh, this is actually a separate. <laughs> Dude, I know. Hey, like Aaron, I know all about them. I've watched a lot of YouTube videos on this. You <laughs> hey, hey, listen. You want to steer clear of these cats? <laughs> so, so basically, what happened is, is show came to realization that so his mom was actually a Black Panther, and so he had strong pullings in that way. And then he uh, grew up and started, you know, making his way in the world as an adult. He starts to have this realization that neither major political party represents what he thinks. And as a Christian, he doesn't fit neatly as a Republican or as a Democrat. So he. Came 
came and with some other guys founded this organization, the Ann Campaign, in which they pulled together 10 politicians from both sides of the aisle and sit down and discuss with them these issues. Uh, and that's kind of their main thing. They build their year round, but then there's, there's, you know, there's a blog and other resources, podcasts, these kind of things, but all about uh, engaging the culture from a political angle, but as Christians, not as, not as partisans, which I think is really cool. I've talked to him about it and he sees that directly related to his art. So as the album's coming out, he sees these all as part and parcel with his same, uh, his same position as an artist within culture, which I think is really cool. Yeah, the intentionality comes through on the album. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, for many film goers, Zach Galifianakis is known for his roles in blockbuster comedies like The Hangover, Masterminds, and The Campaign. But in Baskets, he tries something totally unique, dark, melodramatic prestige comedy. Produced by Louis C.K., the show about a sad rodeo clown is weird, sharp, a little sad, and really, really funny. Coming in at number 41, Baskets. It says here that you studied clowning at the Clown Frances, Academy de Clown Frances. That's correct, at the Academy uh, de Clown and Francois. So, uh, chip, chip uh, baskets? Oh my God, what a name for a clown. That's my real name, that's my... Uh, no, your basket's a clown now, Pally. I have another clown name and I prefer to go by that if you don't mind. Okay, well, what's, what's your clown name? My clown name is Renoir. <laughs> what? Renoir. Can't have no clown here named Renoir. You're baskets. Baskets clown. You know how many of your clowns end up in a basket? That's the most <laughs> perfect clown name I ever heard. Great. You're hired. <laughs> this show is, when I first watched it, I couldn't, well, I guess I could believe that something this weird would make it on TV, but it made me appreciate Zach Galifianakis, who is legitimately one of the biggest comedy stars in Hollywood right now, doing something that I, it not just has like artistic merit, because there are some like interesting undertones in the show about disappointment and purpose, but also uh, something that's a totally, you know, embrace of a dramatic type of comedy that is foreign to, I think, a lot of his fans who are just used to his movies. In one of the interviews that I watched uh, when he was talking about the show, he said that he called the show a slapstick drama because there's still a lot of him falling down and getting hit by uh, uh, bulls and things at the rodeo. But it's a totally different take for him. And I think it's something uh, that will really expand what he does in the future with his movies. He's honestly so good at that. Like he balances that line between the dark melancholy humor and kind of like that slapstick. You're still laughing at me. We're still having a good time and like making this really in otherwise intense subject light. Yeah. The, the live from the purple onion thing. That was like the first stand up DVD that he released. Mm-hmm. It was on Netflix. I mean that, that, that was like exactly yeah. that mm-hmm. tension of wait, mm-hmm. is this, am I laughing at him or with him? Or is he laughing at me and I don't know what's going on and now I'm sad? Wait, when in the world? <laughs> this is all a joke. And this is before we even knew who he was. I love it, yeah. you know? mm-hmm. uh, I, Jesse, just real quick while you were talking, I, I Googled the show yeah. to, to just see when it aired. It aired from January through March yeah. this year, season one did on uh, FX. And also a lot of pictures of actual baskets come up when you Google. <laughs> well, I, um, you know, um, you know, it's funny because me and Chandler, uh, when we were prepping the show, that my original, my original thing for the top 50 releases in culture this year was just baskets, actual baskets. 
<laughs> and he thought I was talking about the TV show. We so I said, you know, I got to binge watch this thing. Yeah. It's just a happy accident is what yeah, I call that. It worked out really well. <laughs> no, but I do think this is one of the funniest things he's done since Live at the Purple Onion because he does straddle that line, but he also embraces like another persona. He plays two characters on the show. Chip, who we just heard from, who's this washed up clown who went to clown school in France but failed because he didn't think ahead enough to learn French. Um, and so he's just guessing at what the teachers say. <laughs> Um, but he also plays his brother, Dale, uh, Chip and Dale, a twin brother who's successful and sarcastic. So he gets to kind of embrace these two characters and really explore his full weirdness and full humor. It's, hold it's on, really hold on, hold on, hold on. I just caught it. Chip yeah, and Dale. I did not catch the that. Two that brothers, the two brothers yeah. who are actually one actor yeah. are Chip and Dale. Well, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. That's pretty great. From filmmaker Steve Hoover and executive producer Terrence Malick, the documentary Almost Holy follows a vigilante pastor in the Ukraine nicknamed Crocodile Gennady, who goes to extreme and at times controversial measures to save orphan street children from drug addiction. Currently holding a 98% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, the movie is controversial, jarring, and completely gripping. Coming in at number 40, Almost Holy. People must have home. They must have food. They must have family. It's not God's problem. My problem. We dream about good future for our country. This is a real Ukraine. <laughs> I feel like Superman, like real hero. So this movie from Steve Hoover, uh, who's a young Christian filmmaker, um, but actually partnered with, like I said, Terrence yeah. Malick, who a lot of people know Terrence Malick um, from some of his big, you know, blockbusters that aren't documentaries. But you can definitely see the cinematography uh, and some of the artistic uh, influence of, from Terrence Malick in the film. But it follows this priest in, in the Ukraine who is this sort of like, almost like a Batman mm -hmm. type of figure where mm -hmm. uh, he goes out into the streets and almost, it's it's sort of controversial because he's almost forcibly abducting these kids who are living on the street in an effort to save them from drugs and predators and all of these people that are human traffickers that are preying on them. And he is a priest and he does talk about his faith. But at the same time, you know, the, the film shows him getting violent with people who are trying to victimize some of these yeah. children. Well, yeah. Brutally. So it's, it's, it's controversial, but it's also uh, a look at the atmosphere in Ukraine, because one of the interesting things about it is once they started filming it, I, when we talked to filmmaker, we actually interviewed the filmmaker, Steve Hoover on this one. Um, you know, he kind of learned about this guy and thought, well, this would make a really interesting subject for a documentary. Let me follow him. Well, when he started following him, that's when all of the uh, drama between Russia, Russia and Ukraine mm -hmm. came into play with the annexation of Crimea and a political crisis broke out. And uh, Gennady, the, 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 the priest, knew what some of the implications could be for these kids if uh, Russia takes over Ukraine and the instability that would result. So suddenly two stories start to unfold at once in this real life documentary. And it's it's an incredible uh, it is a jarring, but it's a, it, it is a really entertaining documentary, too. Yeah, Absolutely. 
And these are really important stories because in the U.S. we, you know, don't see kids on the street. Mostly if, if children are homeless, they're in shelters um, or taken care of by the state. But in other parts of the world, kids are out on the street as young as age four were featured in this documentary. The questions that the Almost Holy makes us ask, I think, was really interesting. It's difficult, like Rebecca saying, this side of of the world to... Um, we don't, we don't face dichotomies like this guy faces. Like we would simultaneously condemn things like, you know, child trafficking child poverty and, you know, vigilante violence. Um, but in some ways that's, that's a privilege that this guy doesn't feel like he has because there's no one yeah. else who's going to protect these kids if he doesn't do something. Yeah. So he's, Absolutely, in this movie, doing things that we wouldn't necessarily advocate. I mean, like I said, he's like brutally beating people in some of these scenes, uh, like truly, like like a like a Christian Bale style Batman. Yeah. Uh, and then they ask him about it, and he's like, "Well, who's going to take care of these kids if I don't?" You know. I mean, it's it's, a, it's a questions he has to deal with. There are scenes where someone who's like victimizing children is back out on the street, you know, and then he'll go confront them, and and it, you know, and it, with legitimate striking fear, and then says, "Listen, if you ever go near them again, you're going to make me sin." And it's like, whoa. You know, this guy feels like these are the measures he has to take. It's a, it's a really impressive film. Yeah, certainly. The duo Johnny Swim combines Americana songwriting style and folk sensibilities with smart, pop-friendly choruses and soulful vocals. On their latest album, Georgia Capond, the married couple crafts big sing-alongs, intimate ballads, and even a little bit of Southern-inspired alt-country. Coming in at number 39, here's Johnny Swim's Georgia Capond. couple things about about Johnny Swim. Number one, if you're fra- if you're fans of uh, uh, home renovation shows, these they're close friends with Chip and Joe. Yeah, Chip and Joe true. Gaines. It's uh, worth listening just for that. Yeah, because <laughs> like every once in a while they'll they'll show up at the Silobration yeah. they played or Chip's birthday party in the backyard they played. Mm. Two, you know it was weird, Cameron. Yeah. I was wondering why they had a song called Shiplap. <laughs> Uh, no, now two, you know. Two, uh, I'm, I'm a fan of Johnny Swim. Um, I yeah, met absolutely. Abner. I, you know, we'd covered them and stuff, but I'd never mm-hmm. known him. I met him at a Jesus Culture conference in Sacramento a year ago, and I was like, "What are you doing here?" And he's like, um, "What are you doing here?" We're just. I mean, I'm here for a worship conference. He was just there because oh, he yeah. just he's just awesome. in, in love with Jesus. Um, and three, uh, it took 17 takes for Jesse to say Georgia Capond when That's he was true. when he was uh, introing this album. So <laughs> a little behind, behind the, the scenes, scenes there. It's a tongue twister, though. There's like yeah. C's and A's, and it's yeah. hard to pronounce. He kept saying Georgia Capond, like Capond, or he was saying well, Georgia. To be fair, Georgia you know, my favorite was to be Georgia. Fair, Georgia Capond. Johnny yeah. Swim did not include a pronunciation guide in the album, and <laughs> sorry, they just it's a made up word here, so. It's really anybody's <laughs> guess, true. I think. No, this album is this album okay. is gorgeous. Um, I've been following Johnny Swim since they came out on the scene, and since they were with, literally Bond. following them the, around. Yeah, yeah. And then with this album, you can really see their <laughs> evolution, fish. the evolution of their marriage, and the evolution of them as adults who are now like dealing with losing parents. Georgia Capond is actually the name of a body of water in upstate. They, yeah, their parents know. They they after their yeah. last album came out, they had a baby like right after, and they 
kind of went off the road, you know, and 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 then kind of reset. And all these all these songs came out of that season, you know. Yeah, um, "Touching Heaven" is one of the the most beautiful pieces on there. And what I was saying earlier is that Georgica Pond is the name of the pond where um, the, the wife's mom was going to build a house, and then she passed away. And it's like, Amanda's oh, Amanda's mom. My, my hot Johnny swim take is they are like a civil. They if the civil they wars are, had yeah. a lot more fun. And weren't super depressing. I feel like they could be like Johnny Swift. They're definitely like filling the void that the Civil War has left, though. Yeah. This is touching heaven. It should be on some sort of end of the year top list, mm. top t- top top fifty list. Them in a magazine. Uh, maybe people, if they went over to realmagazine.com and subscribed to a magazine at that website, the next magazine that would arrive in their mailbox would maybe have an article it about this be. group. Who it knows? Could be. Yeah, those things hey, do. Happen. How serendipitous would that be? Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and Rebecca, I'm going to give just a, a little editor's note right here. Uh, if in the article you put a pronunciation guide when we mention the name of their album. I think that would be very helpful for the readers because it's incredibly confusing. I, got you I know we usually don't do pronunciation guides in our magazine, but I think uh, uh, this is an no, exception. I think the last time we did, honestly, and this helped me so much, we phonetically spelled out uh, David Oyelowo's name. Oh, yeah. Uh, and and, and like, we put in parentheses but that took, like, weeks and then the word yellow and then O again. And I was like, Oh, yellow. Oh, okay. Yeah. I can say his name now because yeah. it was very intimidating. We had otherwise. to watch YouTube video after YouTube video. <laughs> well, in her new book, The Very Good Gospel, author, speaker, and activist Lisa Sharon Harper does more than just look at why the pursuit of justice is a moral imperative. She dissects biblical texts to understand the deeper messages of Scripture, finding that not only is racial reconciliation and fighting injustice part of every Christian's calling, it's part of the design of God's creation. Coming in at number 38, Lisa Sharon Harper's The Very Good Gospel. So here's, here's what I've really come to believe, is that one's social location in many ways dictates what they can see, period. Um, one's location, one's approach, one's position um, dictates what you can see. It's like, you know, if you're looking at an elephant from the front, then you think the whole elephant is just the nostril and the nose, and that's in the big ears. That's it. But if you're looking at the elephant from the side, you actually see there's much more. But if there's one side, you only see that one side. You don't see the whole, right? So I, I think that the social location of those who handed us our understanding of the gospel was actually very affluent and not just affluent it was literally the location of governments and nations that oppressed others and i think that the reason why we are so disconnected from the scripture is because every single word every single letter every single book every single paragraph every single writer in the scripture was one person was a person 
whose social location was on the underside of oppression. Every single person who wrote the scriptures was oppressed. Every single one. When we have looked at the scripture for the last century, in particular in the American church, we have, and I, I say this generously as an African-American woman, but I'm also an evangelical, right? So I'm, I'm claiming that evangelical heritage, particularly the white evangelical heritage, we have seen the scripture from the position of one who lives on top of systems and structures that actually are oppressing people. I mean, this is why, this is why I could get to the end of the pilgrimage for reconciliation that I went on and realize all of this stuff that happened, happened at the hands, by the hands of people who claimed faith in Jesus. First off, Lisa Sharon Harper is brilliant. Oh, she's awesome. One of our favorites, for sure. Yeah. She, she's, you know, uh, uh, on a lot of the speaking circuits, particularly, uh, with some of the, like the social justice conferences. Um, but the one thing about a very good gospel or the very good gospel, uh, her latest book that, uh, that this interview was based on is her approach to why Christians need to be involved in social justice goes beyond just, you know, it's the moral thing to do, to, to stand up for people who are being oppressed, to stand up for people whose voices are not heard, um, to, to, to recognize injustice. She goes beyond that to dissect scripture, to say yeah. that this is part of yeah. the creation narrative that we've ignored because in large part, we see it from our perspective. And as she was saying in that clip, not from the perspective of like the ancient Israelites who, you know, were living under Babylonian mm-hmm. rule or when, when Jesus mm-hmm. came, you know, under the Romans. And this shift in perspective not only brings new meaning to striving for uh, fighting for injustice, but also to different parts of the gospel, the, you know, and that hence the title, The Very Good Gospel. Um, it was... a for me, it made me look at the Bible in a different way. And I think any book or any piece of art that can do that, uh, you know, should really be recommended to others. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I think you know, one of my favorite things about Lisa, and every time we talk to her, she writes for us or these kind of things, she's able to, to accomplish this. But like you said, Jesse, her ability to, to dive deep into the Bible um, and, and show the deeper structures of what's going on, I think is uh, illuminating case in point, you know, the organizing, uh, motif of this book is the idea of Shalom, uh, peace and creating a peaceful world, recreating the world like it was initially uh, created to be. Um, and she applies that across the spectrum. So there's social justice aspects of it. She talks about it in terms of like relationships. So bringing mm-hmm. Shalom or peace, um, to gender divides. Uh, but my favorite part about it is, I mean, you know, we do a lot with like the, in the social justice sphere, one of the things it's easy to do is think of social justice and these kind of things as an optional activity for Christians to do mm-hmm. um, among other activities. So you can be involved in, you know, the worship team at your church or maybe the tech team, or you could volunteer at the, I don't know, orphanage that's outside the doors of your church, or you could be involved in other forms of social justice just among the options. One of the things she does, particularly in her chapter dealing with Black Lives Matter, is connects it uh, all to this idea of just being a Christian, studying the Bible, and even conversion, where I think she says, uh, she's posing the question, how do we get people across the church to, to really dial into Black Lives Matter? And she's like, they need to get baptized into the vision of Jesus and have eyes to see. And connecting it to connecting that at that kind of deep level, I think helped me see as I, I imagine anyone else who, who read the book or engaged it, um, that a lot of these social imperatives aren't, aren't optional and they're, yeah. they're core identities for, for believers. 
the latest edition of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Doctor Strange, is doing big box office numbers after taking a different approach to the superhero epic. Directed by filmmaker Scott Derrickson, the movie isn't simply about superpowers. It's about faith, spirituality, and uses magic and mysticism Mm -hmm. as metaphors for a kind of power not typically seen in the Avengers universe. Coming in at number 37, Doctor Strange. I spent my last dollar getting here. On my ticket, and you're talking to me about healing through belief. You're a man looking at the world through a keyhole, and you've spent your whole life trying to widen that keyhole, to see more, to know more, and now, on hearing that it can be widened in ways you can't imagine, you reject the possibility. No, I reject it because I do not believe in fairy tales about chakras or energy or the power of belief. There is no such thing as spirit. We are made of matter and nothing more. You're just another tiny, momentary speck within an indifferent universe. You think too little of yourself. Oh, you think you see through me, do you? Well, you don't. But I see through you! Hard to believe that that's Benedict Cumberbatch. Why is that hard to believe? Because it sounds nothing like him. Oh, oh he's, yeah. he's, in, he's acting. I know, but... Yeah. <laughs> he's pretending to you not would, be you would, hey, hey, Chandler, you would think that he does this professionally. I know, it's wild. No, he was great in the movie. I saw this, and um, the elements that it showcases are, like, of spiritual warfare, of a lot of mysticism, and it puts, you know, a gospel-centered faith in an Eastern context. Honestly, it yeah. does. And I've heard that some people find, you know, have criticized that. Um, but personally, like, if I was... a able to think abstractly about the elements presented in the movie theater and really find, you know, that what Scott Derrickson said in his interview with us, that he does like pushing the boundaries of, of, you know, what we assume about faith so that we'll kind of think about it differently or in a new way. I definitely found that this movie did that. Yeah. What, what, what's interesting is like the, the whole Marvel cinematic universe had landed on a formula that worked, right? Like every one of those movies just makes a ton of money. So changing it up and not just making one about another sort of anti-hero or a Tony Stark that finds some sort of superpower, you know, and and goes on his own little hero's journey and joins Mm -hmm. this team you know, that's just kind of a funny jaunt with like mutant powers. There was a risk there. They didn't really have to do that. And Dr. Strange was like an obscure character. If he was never included in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, no one would have said anything because he's not all that well known. So for them to try to uh, introduce a character that relies on, you know, the the spiritual and, uh, you know, these ideas that are just deeper than uh, I got zapped by radiation. I have like a cool power. There's an interesting risks that they were taking there and like you're saying going with scott derrickson a guy who is a christian and brings an element of his own faith and his own spiritual journey into his films was a really interesting decision but it's one that's really paid off at the same time benedict totally uh carried that kind of hubris character that made tony stark and makes all of these heroes kind of memorable yeah. um he performed dr strange really incredibly you think you know how the world works You think that this material universe is all there is. But what if I told you the reality you know is one of many? What the? This doesn't make any sense. Not everything has to, Doctor Strange. Through the mystic arts, we harness energy and shape reality. 
The Avengers protect the world from physical dangers. We safeguard it against the Yeah, oh, one of the things that's so interesting about the departure for I think the the Marvel what is it, Marvel Cinematic Universe? That's is, right, the MCU. Is that much like, I mean, interesting that it's been Which I had, while well, this last issue was going through edit rounds, mm-hmm. I had to look it up. Like, I never heard of yeah. the MCU before. It's, it's and it's deep. You got to kind of be one Marvel of those Cinematic people. Universe is like capitalized and it's like... But yeah. we got yeah. Well, you, I, you, I remember this was years ago. We did something in Front Matter, yeah. and I made one little mistake, including a movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe that was just part of the other Marvel Universe. And you <laughs> would have thought that there, I had put heresy in there. You would have thought I would have mispronounced <laughs> the name of the Johnny Swim album in Front Matter, the way that people got upset at this. It, it, people take the Marvel Cinematic Universe really seriously. They, they take it seriously. Well, one of the characteristics of the whole... Um, universe is that everything is very it's like highly modernist so there's like a scientific explanation for everything even thor and yeah. that whole realm of characters are actually just from the future they're aliens from some kind of future time who they're figured not like out a gods way to, from to get back. Greece, right yeah. there's no supernatural elements yeah except for in doctor strange yeah so the fact that they're tapping into the one supernatural character or supernatural world-based character and they picked a christian to direct it is just fascinating the other, the other weird thing is when you when you google doctor strange mm-hmm Lots and lots of pictures of baskets show up. I don't, I don't understand. Again, this was another mix-up between Chandler and I. I was so impressed with how useful baskets are for me, especially this year. You know, guys, I was more of a backpack guy. Uh, and a lot of times I would just, you know what I would other do? And I don't know why I would do this, because baskets have been readily available literally for thousands of years. And it's so years. easy. You just put your laptop yeah, in But up until 2016, like I, would just, I would just load, or like, let's say I had to carry a bunch of, like, cans of soup somewhere. I would just load them in my arms and big dangerous pyramid and inevitably <laughs> drop them everywhere <laughs> slip on one it was hilarious um but uh yeah so anyway baskets is number 43 and 36 this year good year for baskets <laughs> big year for baskets big comeback in a year where every network battled it out to see who would emerge as the king of late night james Corden did something different he won the internet. His clips of carpool karaoke sessions, drop the mic battles, and self-deprecating sketches not only became viral hits, but also helped humanize his celebrity guests like no other show could. Coming in at number 36, The Late Late Show with James Corden. When you're booking restaurants, yeah. do you have to go and they go, and under what name? And you go, Adele. The Adele. No, I never drop my name in case they call the paps. But then are they like, sorry, no tables? A lot and you of the time. Have to go, yeah, yes, a lot of the time. No, but when I say. Yeah. I'm well, then I have to get someone else to call it because I can't drop my, na- my own name. No. I didn't mean dropping the A bomb. That's my point. I quite like the phrase dropping the A bomb. We could have had it He starts doing the hype man thing. That's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I feel like last year was sort of the year of Jimmy Fallon, where he was like injecting kind of new energy into mm-hmm. the Tonight Show and kind of really finding his lane, doing like fun games and stuff. But James Corden. I feel like he's doing something that's really different where, yeah, carpool karaoke is sort of its own little gimmick, but it's not in the same way a gimmick. that 
that Jimmy Fallon, in, in that, I mean, it, it's, they're singing in a car, you know, it has like, yeah, they definitely run off gimmicks, but there, there's an intimacy involved with James Corden interviews that I feel like isn't present in anyone else, particularly who is now probably his main rival, which is Jimmy Fallon. Well, it's, 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 there's, it's a natural kind of conversation that he's talking. It's not just like bit points, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, I feel like there's just a, comfortability there that like you're hanging out with friends you know I like it I I think he's refreshing in late night I honestly I think he's I mean the heir apparent to like uh, not Jimmy Fallon but Jimmy Kimmel I mean like that kind of like positive humor and it's actual funny and it's not just like you know I don't know. I mean, they're not just playing games. Yeah, doing, well, that's yeah. that's the other thing. Like, yeah. because like you were saying, Kimmel is a little cynical, and even Colbert has a degree of cynicism. But the the difference, I think, the tone of Fallon and James Corden is similar. But I feel like the difference, like you said, Cameron, is it's the humor smarter. I think. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, you know, like he uh, if you watch him, especially his like sketches, they are, you know, self-deprecating and funny because he's an actor, you know, where Jimmy Fallon uh, comes from, you know, like SNL. Like I was watching the Jimmy Fallon bit the other night he did with Justin Timberlake where they're when they're like two kids at summer camp. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're both sitting in their bunks and they start singing Alanis set. There was literally no joke there. It was just an absurd setup with them singing and laughing breaking up the whole time and i get there's some charm to that to see justin timberlake laughing at his own you know old camp counselor costume or whatever but it isn't that smart where james corden is constantly charming but constantly smart and like you were saying gets people uh to have a more laid back and authentic conversation yeah i think so i mean i think the key there Cameron, you mentioned it as he has a refreshing show Mm-hmm. That in an era, especially, people get a sense of who he really is. Yeah, you know? it's not as well, casual. Yeah. Even, even uh, I'm thinking of two hosts who are very popular now, but like Seth Meyers taking over the spot that he took over at NBC, and even we've talked Samantha B and those kind of people. Uh, you don't get an agenda, I think, with James Corden. Like you can just kind of watch it and not be. Um, feel like there, there's something that you need to pay attention to or like you need to learn something or I also I feel need like to turn around and be angry about something. Late night is incredibly formulaic and in the bits and the segments and stuff like that. But I feel like there's a, a, a looseness to what James is doing, even going outside and going into the cars and things like that. That He's just kind of evolving the scope of the format. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I think that's uh, refreshing as well. I'm uh, just wondering how long until he replaces Colbert. Yeah, it's yeah. seriously, I, <laughs> I, I think it could be, Sometime in 2017. What? Be, hot take right what, there, folks. What, what, wouldn't shock me. Yeah, wouldn't you don't see Colbert on this list. Yeah. Hailing from LA, indie pop outfit war paint, Southern California influences can be heard throughout their new album, Heads Up, full of sunny melodies, dance-friendly beats, and constantly surprising arrangements. Heads Up is an intricately produced collection of smart, catchy songs. Coming in at number 35, War Paints, Heads Up. You're a new Chandler loves Warping. I do. We were at Lollapalooza a few years ago. 2010. And they were on that side, 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 <laughs> side, side, side stage. Yeah, you went to see Stars, and I was like, nah, dude, Warping. Yeah. And, and uh, <laughs> he was there on the front row. He had handmade a poster board sign. Oh, and yeah. Went all out. He, yeah. 
<laughs> made a t-shirt. Chandler, let me ask you this. Be, as a longtime Warpaint fan, to the degree that you hold signs at Lollapalooza. And, and he literally wore Warpaint all the whole over. The Warpaint yeah. getup is really what. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I realized, <laughs> go Chandler was such a big fan. It, you know, they, are, they don't like him coming to the shows because, like Rebecca, he'll follow them, and it's just some random guy in Warpaint, and they've never <laughs> made a connection. It's just some psychopath <laughs> that keeps but showing They up. don't have time to think about it because it's, it's like the hush-hush, like, oh, that guy's here. Just there like, may be a few. Get in the uh, van and go. Several members of Relevant have restraining orders against yeah. <laughs> bands, actually. Yeah. So, Chandler, yeah. let me ask you this. As someone who's liked Warpaint for a long time, how do you think their latest album, Heads Up, stacks up to some of their other releases? Because I feel like it's the best of their career so far. Ooh. Well, I mean, it's definitely more pop sensible. But that's my it, pop first one. Here. I like it, though. But it's the, one that, it's the first one that Jesse likes because there's more sure. accessible songwriting Absolutely. and whatever. But it's not necessarily that kind of like underground indie cred music no, no, that they were necessarily. They, known they, for. I feel like they made that transition to um, accessibility while retaining that like, you know, experimental thing really well. Like they still have the same tones. They still have the same like drum feel and Yeah, it's danceable. It's yeah. melancholy. Absolutely. So it can speak to the indie kids. I love it. And... Here's the mainstream. crazy thing. They've been a band since 2004. Yeah. Yeah. The crazy. crazy thing is that they were a band for like five years before they released their first EP. Well, I mean, y'all were just talking about 2010. Yeah. yeah. Like that was, and that was, they awesome. were like, they were like now. the brand new and that, percolating. And that was before their first album. They like got, they kind of popped off their first EP, but they had been a band for five years just playing like around LA at that time. songs like this one so that sounds a lot more like a, like they're old that's what stuff. i said which makes the last song we heard and their singles like stand out more that yeah. it's almost like this album they put their heim moments in there yeah like sure. we're gonna have our we're gonna have our moment right. this is it and this song is gonna be the one that becomes like our heim breakout song yeah and uh but they still have their that kind of original i mean it's still vibe. an album you know that's yeah. kind of the nice thing and about i feel like Warpaint. new indie bands are kind of trying to copy their style or trying to do similar sure. things to what we just listened to yeah, absolutely yeah i mean i could also hear like a bit of like a metric influence too like that 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 skirting the line of like cred indie uh rock you know to really smart poppy stuff all right, well, uh, guys, we we had a, we had a fun rundown today. We and, did it, and and a, and a lot of interesting takes. I do. I I have a note here that I promise I, I would mention something, even though it's not included in the countdown. And since we're wrapping up, I'm just going to throw it out there. Uh, after much debate, I'd say Cameron and I argued about this for hours yesterday. At one point, uh, you know, it got it got uh, really heated. We came back together. We had a hug. We had some pizza. We argued about it again. <laughs> Uh, it got heated. I'm not bringing it back up until this moment after about five hours of argument yesterday. David Blaine's magic special will not be included in this or any episode <laughs> of the relevant top 50. Um, he um, legitimately, no lie, legitimately wanted the David Blaine special that aired this past week on ABC at 10 p.m. on Tuesday Cameron. to be included in the top 50 moments of Cameron, culture this year. He- did you see him regurgitate a live frog on the Tonight Show? <laughs> I, it's Dude. not I wanted. Um, I didn't, listen. I my take is this: Magic brings America together, especially magic which involves regurgitating live animals on the television. Doctor Strange movie proves it. 
Yeah, Jesse, honestly, yesterday, for, he's, he's exaggerating slightly about how long we discussed this, just slightly, <laughs> mm-hmm. but he legitimately was making an impassioned case that in this climate this year and, and, and this election <laughs> season and all that's happened in race relations magic in, the, in, the, in our country together. this year, that this country <laughs> needs magic and that David Blaine is what uh, the hope of America. So, so who, if who you agree David with Blaine us, with, with Jesse, tweet yes, at us. Yeah. We need to know yeah. if <laughs> that, you're listening. That's right. That's right. I snuck <laughs> it in here anyway, Who are representing Cameron? here? <laughs> <laughs> like, who would David Blaine replace? Like who, what, what, who? That was my point. Looking at the list, like these major yeah. Films and, and holy or David books Blaine? that like you know change the culture. To a million or, or David Blaine. Yeah, so. it was right up there with Bony Bear. Yeah. But anyway, like Rebecca said, if you if you agree with me about David Blaine, or if you want to just follow us to see get, get uh, constant updates, or let us know what you thought about this week's show, regardless of your thoughts about David Blaine, follow us on Twitter at Relevant Podcast, um, and we'll let you know when new episodes are dropping. They'll be here every week up until the end of the year. Also, thanks to our sponsor, Video Blocks. You can get your year subscription today for only $149 at videoblocks.com slash relevant. That's videoblocks, V-I-D-E-O-B-L-O-C-K-S dot com slash relevant for this discounted offer. Well, guys, thanks so much for joining us. I'm Jesse Carey. I'm Cameron Strang. Rebecca Joe. I'm Aaron Hanbury. I'm Chandler Strang. We'll see you guys next week on the Relevant Top 50. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.